Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. All opinions are those of the speakers. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Look at that. I got it started and everything. Got it started. We remembered. We are on number 47 podcast for the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum, and we would like to welcome back author and guitarist John Stubbings. Um, We had such a good time with John before. We figured, let's do it again. Um, You are gluttons for punishment. We are. And John John has... um, a little uh, a little information on a new book that he's writing and then um, we're gonna jump into a little british folk music for a while so uh welcome john thank you very much it's uh, as they say on the best radio handover links it's a pleasure to be back thank you for having me apparently is what we say on occasions like this well thank um, you for being had <laughs> <laughs> so i think that, so um as some of your readers uh sorry listeners well, no, I wrote a book called um, The Devil Is In It, uh, a sort of history of the American acoustic guitar, limited edition. Uh, I printed just 500 of them and they all got bought, gobbled up um, quite quickly. Interestingly, uh, about 90% were sold in the US, which was sort of what I suspected. And there is, there's a little theme coming through here because it's, you know, the British are mad keen on music, guitars are not an alien instrument, um, but it's, it's just a very different market. American guitar enthusiasts, maybe you guys just have more money, uh, but I don't necessarily think so. Um, but uh, they, the books mainly went to, to America and I had a, fantastic response i mean because i sold them directly um i had the privilege of engaging with the buyer i wasn't dealing with a a wholesaler or a bookshop i actually um and the book was not cheap it was about 300 dollars for the collector's edition and about 150 with shipping for what i called the monochrome the the mono edition um so they've all sold out i've just um produced 50 uh, iPad copies um, and I'm only going to produce, I'm only going to release 50 of them um, and the book works really well on an iPad. Um, it doesn't work well on a Kindle. The Kindle's too small and the book is designed to be on a large format and an iPad is about the same size as a physical book so um, I've still, I'm, I'm sort of selling those but my big thing is next year I'll release um, the companion edition um which is a book called the guitar detective um which is sort of based on um i was just looking at history so in 1990 i owned about 12 guitars um 12 nice guitars um which as we all know nice guitar is code for probably more money than i'm prepared to admit to my wife um or partner um (laughs) But, and I was offered, um, well, there was a, someone told me there was a guitar being sold by a guy that he knew. 
that was purported to have been played by a black blues musician who toured the UK in the late 1950s. Now, there were a lot of black guitar uh, guitarists who were in Britain in the late 50s. Big Bill Brunsey was here, Josh White was here, um, Lonnie Johnston was here. Um, they, they got a big audience. I mean, they, you know, I was going to say they couldn't get arrested in the UK because in, in the US, but they, they did well here. And the pay was good. And there was an enthusiastic uh, audience um, for uh, American blues music and American country blues and what might be called American folk music. Um, so the story went that this guy had left the guitar in London, never returned, and it had been kept to one side by someone who knew him and it was now here we were 30 years later he clearly wasn't coming back and the guitar was available um, and I started inquiring into it and that whole inquiring into it and seeing was it written it was it did it really belong because there's so many you know oh, I've got um, Robert Johnson's guitar and I'm prepared to sell it to you for a million bucks. And um, everyone knows that it's not Robert Johnson's guitar, um, but there's all those stories. So, and that's what the book is about. That's what the Guitar Detector is about. So it's a, um, it's a, I'm calling it a companion edition to The Devil Is In It. Uh, and that comes, I'm going to, hopefully that'll come out uh, a very early next year. And hopefully you might have me back in December time to give you a preview, but, um, but that whole, um, so you, you wrote to me and said, be fun to have a discussion about British folk music. Um, and I'm all, I am, I'm very interested in British folk music. I spent a lot of my time in British folk clubs. Um, and, but I'm in, I became very interested in the relationship between British folk music and um, American folk music. And they are very different. And there's quite a lot of, I think it's a very it's a very interesting topic. There's quite a few questions that get raised. Like, I always found it interesting that okay, we exported blues and rock and roll back to America via the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. It's a it's a well worn cliche, but it is what happened. Um, but I always found it interesting, given that we had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Dave Clark Five and all those '60s pop groups, that they're never there wasn't and there still isn't a substantive british guitar manufacturing company there is no equivalent there is no british equivalent of martin or gibson or fender or uh, gretch or all those famous american brands there are some very good boutique guitar makers in britain but nowhere near the number as, that there are in america hundreds of them in America, whether or not any, all of them are making money is debatable, but there are a lot of people making a lot of money out of making guitars. But obviously, um, and that's, that's one man bands. And then you get into the Santa Cruz guitar model of a sort of a, a boutique bespoke maker, but making at a much higher volume, but not a massive volume. We've got no equivalent to that. It never, ever happened. Yet we were the home of the Beatles, we were the whole home of Mersey Beat and all that guitar-led music, yet we never really made instruments in a, 
in, in Britain. And I think that's quite an interesting topic we might want to talk about because it does touch on folk music. It, it really is because it, that, that whole skiffle thing, I mean, you guys have a really strong tradition of traditional music. You have a really strong tradition of that. And all of a sudden, you said there was, there was a thirst for the, for, British, for, the, for the blues in the late 50s and early 60s. I mean, think about all those guys went there and it really revitalized their complete careers. Oh, absolutely. And, and it put them into the folk world. I mean, you know, Muddy and um, uh, Howlin' Wolf and all those people did tours. There, there was the American Folk Blues blues Tour with everybody on it. And, you know, and here they couldn't, they brought us a distinct thing to Chicago. You know, they, they brought really, high-powered electric amplifiers and everybody kind of went eh, i'm not really sure but when they turned on in the uk riots i mean yeah. it, it's incredible um and we had this folk music scene that was kind of growing out of protest and growing out yeah. of unrest and, and stuff like that in this country but i'm just fascinated by what happened with you guys yeah, uh, and, and it is interesting as well, because the guys that came over, I mean, just to talk about Big Bill Brunzi for a moment, mm. Big Bill reinvented himself in Britain. He was dead smart, because what he realised is what, what British audience wanted was the authentic. Not to put too fine a point on it, they were looking for a musician who was descended from slaves and played authentic American blues music, a guy who had been beaten up, a guy who had worked in the cotton fields, a guy who knew hard work, etc., etc. Well, as you may or may not know, Big Bill had many versions of himself, and the one he brought to Britain was and he was by all accounts a very impressive man but in, in size and stature but there's a very famous um film uh, available on youtube um, made in belgium shot in belgium and it's big bill playing in a blues club it's called uh, i should now know what it's called but it's something like big bill um uh, guitar smoking something or other it's a it's a, a wonderful film um, shot by um, basically the couple who were his European managers and um, he realised having played a few clubs actually not in London but in Holland and Belgium that what the audiences wanted was this authentic black blues musician who'd known hard times and that's the act he delivered and I mean he didn't come in wearing a bib and braces and barefoot but the the big bill photo we know of big bill playing jazz in chicago with that gibson with a a, a scroll curly cue scroll at the top of it and he's wearing a pinstripe suit and a snap brim hat 
and he looks very, very cool. It's a very different version of Big Bill to the one that played Europe and in particular played in London. Um, so there was no doubt there was a there was, you know, a bit of engineering going on. As I always say, you know, don't get confused. Bob Dylan is not a real person. Bob yeah. Dylan is an actor who's incredibly good at playing one. He's also obviously a brilliant poet and a, and a pretty damn good guitarist and a great singer. But he is a person who plays a character called Bob Dylan, and he's really good at it. He's got it down to an absolute fine art, but that isn't the real him, the real him, because otherwise you'd never survive. You can't put yourself out on the market and play all those thousands of nights that you play and bear your own soul. You have to be someone. And it's like Tom Waits. Tom Waits is an invented character. Tom Waits doesn't really talk like that and all that croaky, croaky voice. That's the person he thinks you want. That's what he thinks the audience is buying. That's the if you wish, the carapace with which he surrounds his persona in order to get through life. Anyway, enough, enough of that. So it is very interesting what happened when the, when the Americans came over. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who I play guitar with once a week. He's about 80, I think, now. And he, he met Big Bill. Um, so, you know, two degrees of separation. And it was fascinating how he met him. He said he, he used to, uh, as a young man, he used to sing in the folk clubs in, in Britain. And there was um, a couple who really led what was the second revival of British folk music in, London, in Britain. Um, Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall. Peggy Caesar, Seeger's cousin is Pete Seeger. Um, she moved, moved, to the U, moved to the UK. And Ewan McCall was a Scottish English folk singer, really, really good. Um, he wrote the first time ever I saw your face, the original version of that song for Peggy Seeger. He'd move, he had come to London. He'd, 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 uh, she'd come to London. He'd met her. He was away touring and he wrote this song for her cause he missed her so much. And he sang it to her down the telephone line. And obviously it was covered many years later by Roberta Flack, um, but his is the original version of that. And she still plays today, Peggy. Um, oh. But um, so my, my friend Ian said, I was in this folk club with Peggy and Ewan, and they, I, he said, I sang there, um, and he had a pretty good career as a folk singer. And they went, he said, come back to our house, come back to our house. We're all going to play a bit longer. And he said, I got back to the house and there was this guy, black guy sitting on the sofa, holding a very, very young child, who, which was Peggy Seeger's child. He'd babysat the child that night. And Ewan said, oh, Ian, meet Big Bill. And it was Big Bill Brunsey. Um, and he said he was wearing a um, hat and he said he spent the night, he sang a few songs. He said it was really good. He was really, really good. But he was playing that that persona. But the, the big thing about that Ian said, we were talking about guitar playing. He said, he said, I was just so bad at playing guitar, but I was booked three or four nights a week. And he was, was singing traditional English songs with a bit of strumming. 
And he said, whenever we started seeing these American players coming over, we realized that we were absolutely crap guitarists. The Americans were so much better. Um, and he said, you know, Big Bill was, was just a great guitarist. Um, and he said, there were no, there were very few people in British folk clubs who could play guitar. Um, there were lots of guitars around, but we were, he said, everyone was strumming. And there was a, there's a saying, which was, you know, if you could strum three chords, you probably could get a gig in a British folk club. If you could strum four chords, you'd probably get a residency. And if you knew five chords, you were just showing off. <laughs> and, and, and I think it was true. It was, it was true. And that's why when people like Paul Simon came over, who, you know, arrived, he was just a really good guitarist. And that's why they got audiences and Jackson L. I can't remember his name now, Jackson L. Anyway, there's fame. And, um, uh, the, the, the Americans were just so much better at guitar playing. And maybe it's because there were just more guitars in America and people were, were just sort of had learned, whereas the Brits weren't very good. It was only the, the sort of second wave. I mean, um, just to talk about, sorry, I'm, I'm talking while breathing through my ears here. It's, do you want me to stop and do you want to ask another question? Otherwise I'll, I'll just ramble on. You know what I like. So. We'll, we'll hit the mute button if we need to. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the, I believe the movie you're talking about, the documentary is called Ambassador Bill, Big mm -hmm. Bill in Britain, Big Bill Rumsey documentary. It's an hour and 27 minutes. It's no, no, it's, it's not that. I'll, I'll have a little search when you're doing yeah, something okay. else. Okay. It's, it's, it's called like Smoke and Blues and Smoke oh, or something blue, like that. It's called Blue Smoke. Yes, it, that's the one. Yeah, um, I actually have that book. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's beautifully filmed by this, as I say, by this Belgian cinematographer blue smoke house Can't yeah but the film is the film isn't based on that unless well, I, I don't know that book i apologize this is this is the recorded journey of bill brunsey right so the, it's a it's a, a robert robert house wrote it right it's um, a nod to that then the film is different the film is about 10 minutes long hmm. and what's interesting when i was doing research for the devil is in it i any blues musician will tell you when I was 14, I saw that big Bill Brunsey film and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And there are, so Keith Richards said this, but Yanch said it. Um, Eric said it a couple of times, Clapton. Um, the, the, the guy, uh, Ray Davies from the Kinks, they all refer to it. I, 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 that, I show it as light, low light and blue smoke. That's the one, Low Light and Blue Smoke. Yeah, if you search that, Low Light and Blue Smoke, you'll get it. It's um, a brilliant film. Yeah, so it really looks, I, I just, I can see a little bit yeah. of it. It's beautifully, it's beautifully, it won a couple of awards at documentary festivals and whatever. But what's interesting is it was, I did some research, I did a lot of research. And all of those musicians who said, I remember seeing that and I knew that's what I wanted, wanted to do. You know, Keith Richards said, I saw that and I knew, realized I wanted to be black. What's interesting is they would all have had to have been 11 or younger when they saw it for them to have seen it and it for to have influenced them. And I don't believe they did see it when they were 11. I really don't. And I'm the reason why I say that is that it was only screened on television 
in Scotland. It was never screened on television in Britain, in, in England. So unless they all happened to have gone up to Scotland on the very same weekend, on a bus. sitting in a hotel room, and I'll tell you now, back in the day, hotel rooms did not have televisions in, unless you were staying in the Dorchester. It was impossible for them to have seen that film when they were variously 11, 12 or 13. Yeah, there, there, there's a tremendous amount of legend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What they're, what, they're, what they're remembering is they probably saw it when they were 26 or 27 at some documentary or whatever but they want to believe that that was it the only person who might have seen it is the is the late Bert Yanch because Bert Yanch was living in Scotland because he is of Scottish descent and he's old enough he would have been 13 and I know that when he was 13 he was learning guitar and there is a pretty good chance that he would have watched the program on Scottish television and seen it because he talks about Big Bill playing, he remembers the, the white um, phosphorescence on his thumb and Bill, Big Bill played with a, a thumb pick and because of the way that British television was not very high resolution back then, that was probably the blur because, you know, Big Bill is moving his thumb very, the blur of the thumb pick just not being registered. Enough geekism, but that was that. But it is interesting how people, you know, have these odd memories of how they got into folk music. And there's no doubt that Big Bill was an enormous influence, but. Or, so, or, or, cre or created memories. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, John, I, I just wanted to ask really quickly, um, you're talking about uh, how uh, black performers were able to come from America and go over to England and sort of reinvent themselves. Is it, I hate to bring it up, but is it more of a racism thing that these artists weren't able to be recognized in America until they'd been validated by a no, white no, no, audience? A lot, of them, a lot of them had had very successful careers. You know, Big Bill had had a reasonably, to take Big Bill as an example, it had a reasonably good career. You know, he, he performed, as you know, under a variety, performed on record under a variety of names um, in order to avoid the clashing of recording contracts. They all did. Uh, yeah, exactly. They all had to. That's how they survived. Um, but I think by the time, by the time we got to the 50s, there clearly there was, you know, as you know, in America up until very recently, there's always been black performers play for a black audience and white performers play for a white audience. And that was the whole point about Elvis Presley, wasn't it? You know, Sam Phillips was looking for someone who sounded like a black guy, but was white um, because he knew he could never sell a black artist to a white, to the, the mass white audience. Call it racism, um, call it segregation but it was just the way it was but i think a lot of those you know muddy waters um you know big bill and and lonnie johnson were not reaching the buffers but they were just not getting bookings there just wasn't an audience for them and then as soon as white guys started singing black music black sounding music it was even tougher for them and i think it's a long way you know it's not cheap to get from chicago to to london 
Um, and you're probably not going to get necessarily a promoter saying, I will stump up the fare. Um, I think a lot of them were, were coming, obviously, by ship. And you could travel, you know, in steerage probably pretty cheaply. But I think what they heard, in much the same way that Paul Simon and, and uh, Rambling Jack Elliott heard, that there was an audience there. They were very enthusiastic. They're, the audience was white and, want, and was happy to see black musicians. And they were enthusiastic and you could get paid. I mean, when Paul That's Simon left the basket clubs of Greenwich Village and came to London, he was realizing that he wasn't just playing for a few tips in a basket. He could get paid three or four pounds a night. And if someone could string together five or six nights, then that's a pretty good living. Um, that's something else I heard was that in America, a lot of black artists were not getting paid what they were really due for what their records were doing, for what their performances were doing. Yeah. Uh, their promoters and, and labels and everybody else were making a fortune off of them. And the art artists were making nothing. Mm -hmm. And by going overseas, they were able to get the recognition and the treatment as the professional artists they really were. Yeah, and there was the Chitlin circuit for sure. And, you know, they, they worked a, a series of clubs in the South from Texas, Right. Over, over to over to Louisiana, Mississippi, all, all that stuff, and and it was a it was a real live circuit. But yeah. as you say, John, when Elvis came out, I mean, we still had segregated bathrooms at that time. Yeah. You know, Muddy could play a big show, and then he couldn't go to a hotel. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, it, 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 so that was a that was a real issue. And 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 Tad to Tad's point about them getting paid, they didn't. You know, when when Muddy needed a car, he'd go into Leonard Chess and Chess would give him, you know, five thousand dollars for a new Cadillac. And that would be it, you know, or somebody yeah. go in and, and, and they'd get and they'd get this. And they, they all worked. They had to do it. I mean, when John Lee Hooker did Boom Boom in 49 or 50, he did it as John Lee. He did it as John Lee Hooker. He did it as Hooker. And they got 50 to 75 dollars for for a session, you know, mm -hmm. per, per song. They got nothing. You know, I think the other the other attraction, um, and let's not. I mean, I I don't want to sound like we're going to sound like a bunch of lefties here, but um, let's not forget if if you were a, so you're a black guy and you're living segregated in America, and we know how tough that was. You come to London. You finish the gig, you get taken to a pub. Full of white people, where you're not told to go around the back you can talk to white women you can dance with white women you can touch white women in public and if you're a handsome black guy you're a bit of an interesting curiosity I mean Big Bill and you've probably read I know you've got biographies but you know Big Bill had a mistress in a white mistress uh, Pin in uh, in Belgium and uh, had a child by her, uh, Pim, her name was. Um, and I, I know through another friend who ran a folk club up in the north of England, that uh, in uh, up in Hull, and he used to, he went there quite a few times and he had 
at least two girlfriends in Hull. Um, you know, he was a, you know, he was a good looking, interesting, funny, talented man. And uh, he was attracted to women and white women were attracted to him. It was like the Candy Mountain for him. You know, he could go into a bar, he could buy a drink. No one would hit him, spit at him, or maybe someone would, but he was free. And, you know, there was, he was away from, um, you know, from segregation and from, you know, all the, all the, the problems that he had right. as a black man performing in, in America. That's, and again, let's not get too far into that, but I think that, right. was, a, that was certainly an, an important part of the, the attraction. Go ahead. Sorry, Sorry. Well, I was going to, I know there was a real scarcity of recordings that that records were hard to get. American records. Yes. Oh, yeah. That they were hard to get. And when they would come in, you know, it would be like four of them going together and sitting in a room and listening to it for two days, you know, because they were really hard to get. How do you think that affected? Well, there's a weird, there's a, there was a weird thing that the, the records that first came into Britain, well, okay, there was probably a small number of records that sort of made it over by personal importation. But something very interesting, in 1910, there were numerous black artists coming to Britain and Germany to record there is and there is there's a fascinating series of radio programs um and i'll send you a, a separate note and you can post something underneath this because i think there's they're still available and it's about this they're, they're they're about the way that black musicians very famous black banjo player in 1910 was brought over by so there's a very famous highbrow uh, German label called Deutsche Grammophon, a very, very high quality. Well, the Deutsche Grammophon had a London office and recording studio, and they brought lots of musicians over, bands, trios. Um, if my memory was better, I could reel off a few. But these were f- famous people who had not recorded in America. No one would record them in America. I mean, I know we had you had race records and, and the whole of the the uh, Bristol sessions and all that stuff. But a lot of these guys could not get recorded because the, the view of the record company was that we won't sell enough of these records to make it worthwhile. And we'll only be able to sell them to black people. And there aren't enough black people willing to, we think, to buy this. But they came to Britain and they, they were released. Sometimes they weren't even identified as black musicians. They were just identified, here is a fantastic banjo player. I forget the name of the great guy who came over. He actually taught the king how to play banjo. but. So they, there were recordings sort of made and, and that, that sort of worked. But I think um, the, the, if you go to a, a later period, so during the war, there were things called V records. And these were discs that were cut and V discs. They were cut and distributed to American troops during the war. American troops who were stationed in the UK, uh, obviously all the all the uh, bases in the UK and in Europe, and they were they were only licensed to be distributed to troops, and they were used to be played in 
the PX and at dances and on bases and stuff like that. But unsurprisingly, those records got um, lost and distributed out to the British public. So there were lots of these V discs that came over. And then people, people promote I me. Mean, Josh White was brought over to record a couple of albums here and they were very successful. Um, and I think he was still being recorded, but not in, in great numbers. Um, in, ironically, he, he got most of his success when he got re-signed by Mo Ash and was, was then released on Folkways Records. But that was the second stage of his career. That sort of first stage of his career, a lot of his success was in, in Britain. I mean, he came over, Josh White, and did a number of things happened. He recorded a disc. He sat down with a famous British classical guitarist and he wrote a music book. And the classical guitarist used a version of Tab. Um, it was before it was called Tab. It was the it was what flamenco guitarists used to write down their music because most flamen Spanish flamenco guitarists don't read um, standard notation. But they had already invented an equivalent, a six stave version of what we now know as tab. And Josh White and Ivor Marantz produced his book and it was it was all of Josh White's famous hits. And he got together with a German um, Josh White, I think, was playing at the time a Martin Triple O Twenty Eight, which would have been astonishingly expensive to buy in London. And he did a deal with a German uh, guitar manufacturer, and they produced a copy of a Triple O Twenty Eight Martin, um, and that became the Josh White Special, available in Britain. It was the second guitar that Bert Yanch owned. He bought it mail order. From London, wow! And uh, that was his guitar. So he was playing a Trouble 28 copy. I, sh I show him on um, uh, Gramophone, and I show him on UK Brunswick. Hmm. Um, uh, the labels, yeah. Uh, but but so they... all, all from all from you know, uh, and it, it's interesting, John, because it says I you know you read a little bit on. On it, and it says, "I suspect this was recorded in London." And absolutely, you know, I mean, yeah. it's it, it it that that whole, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that. It, I really knew about it, but I hadn't really thought about it in terms of it was just a better place to live. If you were a black man, if you were yeah, a black it was a better place to live and work. You know, I mean. Uh, the the you know there there are stories of of these guys on the road you know there's a story of of uh holland wolf getting so mad at hubert someone that he beat him within you know inches of his life and left him on the road you know and a week later hubert was playing with muddy you know <laughs> but but it, it just that that kind of that kind of stuff happened because of how they had to work i mean yeah. 500 400 miles a day or, or something to play a yeah. to play a, a club with 200 people and sweating and everybody somebody gets shot and yeah. you know the whole bit i mean and and you, and, and you say you, you come to britain yeah and, and it's is a shorter yeah it's a, this is a shorter you're 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 a hero and you get paid reasonably good money um well, better than they got paid here yeah absolutely yeah. and they got respected they got respected yeah you know yeah. um 
big big bill and we're I'm just, only because i've read i was recently reading more stuff about big bill but big play big bill played at the wigmore hall now the wigmore hall in london is it's not a huge venue but it's a classical music venue um it, it's usually for piano recitals and uh, uh quartets it's it's a it's an intimate space probably uh 900 900 people thousand people really classy place big bill played there because they revered he he was thought to be of that stature that what he brought was so important that he got a booking there yeah. um and he played there i think two or three times i got a poster of one of one of the time and they they had lots of these um and and then what was happening was um they had these sort of uh six or seven artists would be booked and they would do a tour but they would each play like three songs so it'd be like lonnie johnson and big bill and someone else and someone else and it was like the blue it was like blues festival and it, it just went round the country and any hall that they any hall that they felt could get an audience and they they toured so you know it it sort of worked really well but there's a there's quite an interesting so we, we talked about you know the the blues scene and i say i'm very interested in this um this these baton changes you know we talk about you know the the blues guys came over from chicago got a very strong welcome in britain during the late 50s and early 60s the people like the rolling stones um already knew their music because they had they've got imported records so when the rolling stones you know re-export american style blues and r&b back to america and there's that famous story that they said to the promoter that i think they were going to appear on a tv program and they said what well, we want and they were getting a bit cocky and they said well we don't want to be on the same tv program as some doo-wop chihuahua band as our sort of support oh well, who do you want they said well oh we'd like howling wolf and the guy says howling wolf you've got him and they leave and then the promoter says who's howling wolf and so they search for howling wolf howling wolf fortunately had just returned from a 20 date tour of europe so he comes back they managed to book him and Howling Wolf is the opener for the Rolling Stones on a TV program. It, it might have been, I, I'm never very good at remembering the the various uh, early, ver it wasn't, obviously it was too early for Dick Cavett, but Cavett, but it was, it was, you know, one of those Shawapa Wapa Woo program or whatever. And they, um, allegedly, the promoter, said okay book me howling wolf and we'll have him whatever howling wolf arrives and the producer of the program the door opens mr howling nice to see you but of course he's thinking heck he's black <laughs> and he's a and he's, monster <laughs> and he's a monster he's a really <laughs> big man and the, the, probably the second thing he's saying i don't think i'm going to say to this guy you can't play <laughs> because he's probably going to eat me literally in one bite. And hence you get that famous program where he comes on, does smokestack lightning. And I imagine the TV audience, the, the network audience had never heard anyone like, yeah. you know, anyone like him, Howling Wolf 
singing Smokestack Lightning. And then and the Rolling Stones are in the background going, yeah, he's great, he's really, really great. So that, so that sort of re-importation, but that happens a lot. There's a very, if you, the thing when we talk about folk music is that we talk about the revivals. So there was an American revival of folk music in the, in the forties, which was like, you know, Pete Seeger and Burl Ives um, into the Weavers and all that lot. Um, so, and we have the same in Britain. The second folk revival in Britain was in the, late 50s early 60s so if there's a second revival then it would suggest there was a first revival so the first revival was in about 1910 so folk music and it's the old louis armstrong uh, quote what do you think about folk music he says well i think it's great because i ain't yet heard a horse sing so i think all music is folk music because all music is sung by folk um and so so back in 1910 uh folk music which is effectively rural plain song unaccompanied music uh, barbara allen there was a girl all that stuff um and classical composers like vaughan williams and percy granger bartok in hungary were mad keen for folk music and they were they would take these melodies and they would orchestrate them and turn them into pastoral symphonies so it was very posh folk music but it had to be found because there were no records there was no recordings of these of folk songs so the only way that they were collected they were passed along orally so albert the blacksmith would sing to his apprentice Oh, the old blacksmith song. I only have one tune for all my folk songs. Oh, he was a young blacksmith, and uh, so so that so these classical collectors go round Britain collecting songs, and they'll they'll go to a, a village and they say go to the pub and say who's the best singer in the village? Oh, it's old Jack the blacksmith. Okay, so they'll go and visit old Jack the blacksmith and they say Jack, what are the song? What's the oldest song you remember learning as a lad? Oh, I remember the jolly blacksmith. Oh, okay, how does it go? And they would write down the words and they would, because there's no recording machines, they would annotate it. They would literally write the notes down and that would be the recording. And the most famous of these um, uh, was Cecil Sharp. And he was a very erudite, cl uh, classically educated person. He went around Britain, uh, Scotland, Ireland, collecting songs. And then he heard that a lot of these songs, the best versions you can hear of them are in America. So in 1911, he goes to Appalachia and he wanders around Appalachia with his assistant, who I think he was quite fond of. And they would meet people and say, what songs do you sing? What songs do you remember? And what he realized was that the songs they were singing in the hollers and the valleys and the little isolated community all along Appalachia were English uh irish and scottish ballads and because they weren't corrupted they were singing the pure version of them because this woman's great great grandfather had come over to america as an indentured servant aka slave and when their 20 years of service finished and they were given a few bob to pension them off they couldn't buy any local land in 
Pennsylvania or Virginia because it was too expensive. So they went to the cheapest land and they thought it would be Piedmont, but in fact it ended up being the really scrubby land up in the hollows of Appalachia. And that's where he collected so many of these songs. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of those Appalachian accents are old versions of Irish and Scottish accents. And they're pure versions of the songs. And when he came back from 1910 to all the way through about 1930, folk music was very upper class. And, and it had also been smoothed out. So when he collected a song which was about the, the boy on the haywain having his way with the, the parlour maid and how she was so excited by what she saw and stuff like that, these rather posh uh, academics smoothed out the words. So any reference to an appendage or to having syphilis or stuff like that was all smoothed out. And but they they sang these songs and they were sung in a very classical way. Um, they would be wearing dinner jackets and long dresses and singing the songs. And that became that was folk music um, as known. And then it sort of got out of fashion in the 30s and 40s. Then when you get to the 50s, you get begin to get the influence of the Americans coming in. And we talk about skiffle. You know, skiffle was was effectively American tunes, American country folk songs brought back from America to Britain and then turned into skiffle music. And, and I don't know whether I talked about this last time, but we had skiffle was absolutely huge and it brought the guitar back or brought the guitar to Britain. Very few guitars were, were, were played in Britain. The only people played guitars in Britain in the 40s and 50s were classical players who were playing the classical repertoire and a few people playing in jazz bands playing uh, plectrum guitars arch tops and we did have a small plectrum guitar arch top industry in britain to satisfy that need um so this skiffle craze happened so in 1950 and i've been back through all the data the Trade Association for Musical Instruments recorded that we sold 6,000 guitars in Britain in 1950. And they were virtually all imported. And they were imported from Germany and Spain and Italy, all the regular places. Very few, a few were made in Britain, but not many. But just six, just, no, 5,000 guitars, five, five and a half thousand guitars in 1950. In 1957, the industry sold 250,000 guitars in Britain in that one year. 240 fold increase. And that was uh, all driven by skiffle. Um, and if they couldn't buy a guitar, they made a, they made a, a something to, to yeah. do it with. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a powerful. Um, Absolutely. And all the guitar, virtually all the guitars were made in Germany. Oh, the irony. There, there we were. We were on our uppers recovering from the war um, still. I mean, you couldn't, if you, even if you could afford an American-made guitar, you couldn't buy it because American luxury goods were, were um, unavailable. They weren't allowed. Because they were, they were, we, we had such huge war loans 
to the states that we we were trying to limit the amount of goods we bought from you we certainly couldn't buy um you know expensive what were incredibly expensive guitars um but like fenders think about stuff. think think about that that world war ii ends we're talking about this time and england is pretty messed up we're broke well yeah but but you're bombed to death and 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 you, you, you've been through some stuff. And what happened in the United States was this incredible boom when everybody came back. You know, the, the late 40s and the 50s were like party time for everybody. And, and you know, we're still recovering from that. Those <laughs> good times. That, yeah, that, that, that particular time here. And I think the dichotomy of that is really interesting that you guys were just anything you could get your hands on would work. And we were like, well, you know, we need um, we need a, a three pickup guitar instead of a two pickup guitar, you know, and and we need bigger amplifiers and you know all that stuff. And the I think the electric guitar really pushed the 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 folk guitar through the roof. And I, obviously, obviously the folk scene did it with Martin. I mean, for I think for us, probably the biggest person that was Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You know, I think they sold more guitars than anybody. Yeah. You know, without 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 question. And um, that's a pretty documented documented thing. But it, it's really interesting how it circumstance. You know, yeah, just, just circumstance. But there is there's so so in Britain, just talking about the British scene. So in Britain we've got Skiffle didn't last many years. It was only three or four years. Um and but obviously Skiffle created a schism, but it actually got got young people. Well, two things happened with Skiffle. For the first time, the people playing the instruments were the same age as the audience. Mm. And that was a first. Mm. You know, if you were interested in if you went to a dance hall and you saw a dance band, I'm thinking about in Britain. And there'll be a guitarist there, but he's obviously he's just playing. He's a he's a percussion instrument. Chunk, 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 chunk. If you're 18 or 19, the people up there are in their 30s and 40s. That, that, so so music is something that is played by older people who are classically trained, have gone through all the years of learning and all the, their baby steps and whatever, but they're, they're the professional musicians. And they're, they're, they're such a long way away from you as an 18 and 19 year old. And suddenly you go to a dance, a club, a folk club, a skiffle club. And the three scruffy herberts on the stage are the same age as you. And they're making music. And OK, they're only playing three chords, but they're making music. And they're, they're, you know, there's a tea chest, double bass. There's a guitarist, possibly a banjo player, because he would have come from the trad jazz band that was also playing that night, um, and uh, a washboard for percussion. And suddenly it was like, hey, if he can play music, I can play music. And it was Skiffle that just pushed guitars into people's hands. I mean, there was in 59, I think, there were thought to be 40, it's a big number, 40,000 skiffle bands in Britain. Oh, yeah. 
40,000 and 10,000 skiffle clubs. And a skiffle club could be anything. It could be a coffee bar or a room above a pub. But the most important thing was that for the first time in Britain, at least, music was for young people was being played by young people. And that was just a revolution. But then you've got a schism because you've got skiffle. Skiffle dies out pretty quickly, but it splits into two things. So you either, if you were a skiffle band in Liverpool, you either could go down the folk end of skiffle, or you could go down the, the sort of rock and roll R&B end of skiffle. So if you're, if you're John, Paul and George, and you've, you know, and, and you've got Pete as your, Pete Best as your drummer, you've decided that you're going to go down the R&B end. Um, and as you know, so many rock and roll bands started playing skiffle. I mean, there's the famous misquote, which is George Harrison saying, no Huddy Ledbetter, no Beatles. Pretty cool thing to say. It's not what he said. He said, no Huddy Ledbetter, no Lonnie Donegan. No Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. Yeah, the yeah. Beatles, John, Paul and George, I'm not adding Ringo because Ringo hadn't joined the band then, adored Lonnie Donegan. But, and I don't know whether I mentioned this last time, I forget, but if you listen to Lonnie Donegan playing Rock Island Line, it's like Huddy's, Huddy Ledbetter's version, slightly speeded up. And in fact, if you, and I've got Huddy recording of Rock Island Line, um, and, and also Midnight Special, um, if you if you speed up the 33 disc to 45 it's lonnie donegan lonnie donegan didn't just borrow the tune or the words he borrowed the performance the intonation the spacing the breaths between the words and so you know so george is right but they would never have heard huddy ledbetter but they heard lonnie's version and Lonnie used to borrow records from the library of the American Embassy. Um, and the American Embassy have still got the books and there are four discs still outstanding to be returned. And they were borrowed by, because Lonnie wasn't really Lonnie Donegan. Lonnie had, I've forgotten his first name now. Lonnie had a different first name. Um, so he signed it in his real name. And about... Three weeks later, he went to the Royal Festival Hall to see some blues musicians. And the one who impressed him the most was a guitarist called Lonnie Johnson. And the next day, he was no longer what he was called before. He became Lonnie Donegan. And Lonnie Donegan sort of was the seed for so many early rock and rollers. They all, I mean, every, because he was so different. It was amazing. It was the first time in Britain we'd ever seen a guy step out on a stage in front of the rest of the band with a guitar and sing now elvis did do it later but he did it afterwards lonnie did it in about 57 literally he stood there strummed like hell and sang he sort of invented the idea of a solo singer guitarist in front of a band but and so there was that 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 schism happened was so there was a whole bunch of people who rejected that American trash 
and that became the British folk sing with with lots of earnest people in sweaters with fingers in their ears singing I was a poor farmer's son <laughs> he was in fact an accountant who worked in South London but for that one night only he was a poor farmer's son even though he spoke like this really and said yes I'm trying to do the double entry bookkeeping on Wednesday but on Thursday nights I go to the folk club and I become a farmer's son and so and I remember going to folk clubs like that they were hilarious but um they they were the folk scene and then out of all those americans we got this the next iteration was what was known as um it wasn't really it was sort of a progressive um folk movement and that's where you get uh bands like you get bert yanch and john remborn and bands like pentangle and they lead into fairport convention and you get that folk rock scene and that becomes an in sort of an important part of that and also then you get the singer guitarists who are playing really really well um and we suddenly have a whole in britain we have a whole host of astonishingly good guitarists folk, acoustic guitarists all sort of trying to um do you know the song angie oh sure um, da -da -da -da. And, you know, it's what anyone who owned a guitar, any chap who owned a, an acoustic guitar wanted to play. The, the thing you really wanted was to be able to play Angie. Um, uh, and, Keith, Keith Richards said the first thing he learned was uh, um, uh, Bolero, uh, hmm. that, uh, and he did it on, a, you know, a Spanish guitar because that was the only thing he could get, but, but it, Richard Hoover is, is a big fan of simultaneous discovery. Yeah. He's very big on simultaneous discovery. And it's really, it's really interesting because this is probably, I don't want to say the direct opposite, but it was really like people with hoses and they would turn them on and all this stuff would come out and then they would fire back at the other side and 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 you know it just this 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 back and forth where it didn't develop all at the same time in in the same way it developed because this happened and this happened and this happened and it it, it really amazing the, the connections I, really, yeah, and, and, really and it's the job is to join all the dots isn't it? It's to join all the dots and make sense of all these connections. And, and we love, love it to be neat and for it to happen like that, whatever. In reality, it's never like that. It's simultaneous. It's all over the place. It's sort yeah. of, and then of course, what the historian does is make sense of it by neatening it up and tidying it up. And in fact, what you're looking at, that isn't what happened. The end result is obviously the same because we know that that's the known. And we might also know the, the previous state. But quite how it all mix up together is is sort of unlikely. I mean, it's it's it, the, one of my favourite British, I'll call him a folk musician, John Martin, folk as a guitarist, absolutely brilliant guitarist. But he was, you know, he started off as a as a folk guitarist, playing folk songs, and then you can just see over as he and he gets a record deal. And as each album changes, you can hear the influences as he picks up more and more influence and he becomes slightly bluesier and then he becomes jazzier. And it's, but what got him there was, I remember I interviewed him years, years ago, um, 
he was always a difficult person because he was a drunk. Well, no, he was. Uh, yeah, he was a drunk. And he said, you know, so many of these songs I learned from folk musicians. He said, you know, who and I remember it as a literally as something being sung to me by a bloke with a finger in his ear. And he said, I went home that night and I turned it into a guitar song. Um, so, you know, every, everyone's influencing everyone else. But you just, you know, from history perspective, you were trying to make some sort of sense of it. How, how fascinating. You know, it, 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 it just reaffirms my my love of of music and, and musicians and and that openness, you know, and 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 the other side of it, you know, oh, I'll just I'll just lift this melody. You know? <laughs> I can just lift this and I can just put this in here and I can make this into something that's really mine. And maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe it's personal expression and 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 that kind of thing that people just had to do it. But it's really I hadn't ever thought about that before about Britain's bombed and the UK and the US is just exploding with growth. And you guys are just trying to crawl out from the basement. You know, yeah. everything you're doing is, 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 you know, I, I understand. I mean, incredible, incredibly hard times, incredibly hard times. But, but the, the, the story of the, um, these guitars coming from from Germany is equally fascinating and 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 sad. So you you got so the the so at the beginning of the war, the the Germans annex take over, do a Putin, the Sudetenland, which is sort of part of Bohemia, and they in Bohemia one of the things the big things they do is they make violins. And they and all the violin villages, there's, there's three or four famous villages that make violins, and they do them on a. It's it's done as piecework. So uh, I'm trying to think of some Bohemian names that I can't remember, but Sven is the guy who carves the scroll top for the violin neck, and Willem is the one who does the thing at the end and does the bridge, whatever. And and effectively they just produce one thing and then they're all assembled by the by the guy who glues them all together and makes it makes it all work and so when the germans so the, the germans annexes sudetenland and they they allow all the and and that part of sudetenland is german speaking and that they that's where all the, the violins come from then at the end of the war the the russians take it over and they start shooting the Germans, the German speakers. And so the German speakers just run and they leave Bohemia and they make their way into Germany, which is now Germany run by Britain, America, France, and a bit of it run by, run by Russia. And the, this, these two or three families, the key one being the Hofner family, leave Bohemia, in for fear of their lives and they get they live in an old army barracks and get a very very small loan via the Marshall Plan the American Marshall Plan and they start building violins but they discover that there aren't much as much demand for violins but in the 50s there was demand for guitars and they completely switch production and they start making guitars and 
because they're a, fundamentally a violin maker, there's a market for electric bass guitars. So they start making uh, a, uh, not a solid body, but a carved body bass guitar that looks like a violin. And that's how the Beatle bass came about. Paul McCartney's Beatle bass, and it, it doubly worked for him, but because if, because he's a left-hander, if normally he would take a guitar, swing it around the other way, and it would be upside down. So an electric guitar looked odd on him, but because a Beatle bass is the same both sides, it doesn't look like he's playing an odd guitar. But so were it not for the Second World War, you wouldn't have got the Hofner Guitar Factory being set up. And when the skiffle boom happened, there wouldn't have been a ready supply of guitars to come to, to, come to Britain. Well, um, what about Fylde? Or field filed. Yeah, yeah, filed. Yeah, he's a he's a UK builder, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that was a that, that that's a um a really interesting company. Um, it, 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 it occasionally one of his guitars will show up here, hmm. um, and they show up very inexpensively, three to four hundred dollars, and they're yeah, they're they're, and they're terrific they're, instruments. They're terrific instruments. Yeah. It's a um. There are, I think, it's a bit like Loudon. There, I think, there are two or three generations of filed. So some, some of the early ones are definitely handcrafted. Mm -hmm. I think he then goes through a phase, and I apologise if he's listening, and I've got this wrong. He then goes through a phase where it's a lot more like Santa Cruz. You know, uh, there still are single individuals making guitars, but there might be someone, again, a bit like the Martin factory, there's someone who makes bodies and someone who makes necks and someone who puts them all together and stuff like that. And he ha so he had an operation like that. Then I think he got, someone put some money in and they may actually be made not in Britain, somewhere else. And then he's come back and he's now making, and there is a sort of a high level version of filed. So I think not all filed guitars are equal. And you have to know roughly what what you're buying. A bit like Loudon, you know George Loudon. Um, sure. The you know the early George Loudons were made by George and and he, a couple of apprentices. Then he expanded, and then they become a factory. And then George leaves, and then he starts up again. And then you get the new generation of Loudons, which are much more boutique, yeah. sort of handcrafted uh, guitars. And somewhere in the middle, there's a few years where they're a little bit more mass produced that's, i'm sure they're probably good guitars but that's an amazing coincidence with uh fox the builder fox here mm. in, in sonoma and uh he built about he built about 700 guitars at, you know a small very small one or two person shop and then sold it to the uh the japanese who thought that they wanted to own a boutique thing and this was around and he he was the originator of like American mercantile supply for yeah, yeah. You know, for all that. And then I guess I guess I guess the relationship lasted about two years with the Japanese. He couldn't do it. They wanted him to do this and he didn't want to make them that way. And and there was a couple variations. Some of them had a strange headstock and then they wanted him to make D28s about number 400 or 500. They they went to the Japanese stuff and then he just quit. You know, he just said, okay, just go do it. And now if you want to buy a Fox, it's a boutique instrument starting at about 15 to 18 grand. 
and and, uh, and, and he's making it with an apprentice or assistant. Exactly, he's, he's gone yes. back to that back to that yeah. model. It, it, again, simultaneous discovery of this happening over there and this happening over here, and it's just exactly the same business model and the same yeah. way it works. Wow! Thank God Santa Cruz hasn't sold out, <laughs> and never will. Yeah. And never will. <laughs> but actually, ser a serious question. Uh, what you know, Richard? Obviously, at some point. I mean, I know there's a new CEO at Martin, and obviously that you know the first time that there's been a non-family member at the head of the company and all that stuff. Um, but you know, Richard can't. God bless. Well, literally, God bless him, and I'm sure God will bless him. He's, I know he's a God-fearing man and one of the nicest men on the planet. But at some point, Richard's going to want to say. I don't think I actually really want to do this anymore. You know, it's really interesting, um, John, because we, we've had the chance to talk with him a little bit, and I've I've talked with him a little bit um, off, off the record and, and things like that. And he is he is defining his life's work right now with um, being able to hand somebody a piece of wood and run it through his machine and run it through their testing that they're that they're developing mm -hmm. and he will know how that piece of wood will sound scientifically he'll be able to judge that scientifically and you know it, it, he's keeping it close to his chest we don't really know too much about it we don't know if it's a magic box we don't know if it's you know dust that he spreads on it and and, and could do that but he is unbelievably committed i don't see him slowing down no. Um, I, 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 he's, I, I, I was talking with him last weekend and he shows up and he's got his arm in a cast again. And it's the third time I know, I know it. And he's, I said, what, what's up? And he said, well, my Labrador and I had a little, you know, a little, a little run in, you know, and, and, and yet he's asked me to go down to Ojai with him and pick up some wood, you know? So huh? he's not, I don't think he's slowing down. Um, he's redirecting, you know, to this kind of thing and a lot of times it, it, it's hard to get in touch with him because he's so they're they're so involved uh, he and rick beto they're um they're guy from stanford that wrote the book on physics or whatever uh, really are, are are coming up with something that that's fascinating um i hope you get a chance to speak with him about it when when he's when he lets it when he lets it out of the barn and I'm not letting anything out that he hasn't said here on, on the thing, but it was interesting. I because I'm assuming what he's talking about a terrible thing to you should never assume is that maybe if he says, well, I know that that bit of wood I sent through the machine and it came out with a value of seven, three, four, one, nine, eight, seven B. And yeah. when we then made that into a guitar, that neck sounded exactly as I wanted it to sound. So I now know that 97484 or whatever, at least is a base point for for a, a perfect neck. At the fretboard summit, how many years ago was that now? Um, I want to say almost eight, because I remember being there recording Crosby and uh, Joe Henry. And um, I remember doing that that video. Oh, in, that, in that caravan, in the Airstream. Yeah, no. Where he had the D forty five. No, it was in um, it was in one of the it was one of the breakout rooms. All right. And and Crosby, anyway. Crosby and Crosby and um, Joe Henry did that. I think it was probably close to eight years. Don't you think, Pat? I mean, I know I had a hair. I know I had a, a, a crew cut. Um, <laughs> and it must have taken some time for this to happen. But yeah, exactly. But, but I remember. I remember there was a, a, a forum on stage, and I think it 
it's it was Richard um, God I can't remember <laughs> uh, forgive me I forget the other guys there was an arch top maker which might have been Rebecca and whatever and they were you know but they were just talking about guitar making I remember putting my hand up and I said I've got uh, I've got a double O no treble O Santa Cruz uh, serial number 691 and I bought it in and I reckon I must have bought that in about 94 95 and so there we are in 2015 say uh, or 2014 yeah 20 I might was 25 anyway so I said how how is a, a treble O that you make now because you still make this guitar and it's a mahogany back and whatever what's changed and i i never i think he slightly misunderstood my question and because I, I was wondering have you you know clearly you're making the same guitars but you're evolving all the time how you make it how's that how is if i played this alongside a mahogany bodied um triple o 12 fret slot head how would it sound any different and would it be made that much differently? I know probably there'd be a bit more hide glue involved because obviously they've gone a bit more down the, the hide glue. And obviously there are so many options now. But I never got a, a, I never got an answer from that. I think we went somewhere else. Uh, the questioning went somewhere else. But I would be intrigued to know how over a period of time, because I think if you were... Because I had that sense that Santa Cruz is evolving in how they make it, whereas I don't think that level of evolution was happening at Martin, for example. They sort of pretty much take a 20 year period. Most of the guitars, if it's the same model, was probably made in roughly the same way. Maybe if you were looking at a guitar made in the 60s versus one made in the late 70s, it would be heavier and more stolid. And, and the bridge would be in the wrong place. And the bridge <laughs> would be in the wrong place. And it wouldn't be the right shape because the uh, right. former they did it round had worn down a little bit more and right. um, I, whatever. I think I could say that there isn't you wouldn't notice a huge change in the santa cruz guitars other than the age and the time that you've put into playing yours yeah. they've refined their jigs they probably improved their tooling um you know they've refined some of their construction techniques and such but essentially it's the same guitar i mean that tradition that that richard is so insistent on following hasn't changed i mean it's it's what they've been doing for a couple hundred years, you know, starting with violins. And I don't think Richard's going to change that mm. um, just yeah. because there's a machine that might do something faster. He's not interested in faster. Yeah, uh, he's interested in better and he's interested in, in having his people be able to do the best work they can for as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, to me, what's amazing is he doesn't mm. even put a sound port in guitars and that's become almost de rigueur in, in, you know, every other small shop builder. Um, but, you know, they stick to, and, and it's that approach. Can, can, you, can you specify a sound hole? No. Oh, right. Yeah. No, it, it, he's it following a very I, I, scientific. I know there aren't, they aren't there, but I, yeah, exactly. I should say everybody does sound holes. I've never really, I do understand how they work. I've never really cared for them, to be honest, yeah. but. He's following a very scientific approach to all this. And so he's really carefully studying everything he can about the whole process to understand it 
not in a, a mystical, magical kind of a way, but to actually put science to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's an, a fascinating approach. Um, the other know, thing I, that strikes me as well, they have actually got, I mean, clearly, I know it was always a sort of boutique manufacturer, but there's no doubt that there are a lot of people out there who have got the pocketbooks that are fat enough, but so many, I mean, I, I suppose I look at some websites over others, but I do see, if you look at the North American guitar out of Nashville now, and obviously they, they are primarily selling super premium Santa Cruz's. So they're most of the ones they seem to have for sale are stone age top wood and um, wood that's been buried in a coal mine for the last 700 years and and stuff like that which then gets the guitars pretty quickly up towards 30,000 yeah which yeah. you know that's i suppose that's usually single luthier country isn't it that's jason costall uh, mcpherson and all the other names that we know and love and are probably out of reach for the vast majority of people um well all i can say is living in california up at 30 yeah yeah, i was gonna say living in california i can wish that i had bought real estate 30 years ago but i can tell you i sure am glad i bought my santa cruz's 10 to 15 years ago (laughs) (laughs) i think tad can really speak to that evolution that you're talking about because he has a number of f's and fs's right from different from different heritage and you could i think you have a very 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 early one um yeah. along with along with um some more recent things and you know it, i just think he's made, trying to figure out how to make them better um yeah I, I i love i love the fact that that he's concerned about his employees and what repetitive work does yeah. to them so and he doesn't want he, them burnt he, out yeah and he finds a machine that will do it at, a, at, 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 at that same level, you know, uh, I, I, people don't need to cut fretboards. You yeah. know, they just don't need to do it. I mean, a machine does it better and easier and they still have wrist when they're done. Yeah. You know, and it's nice, I suppose, if you're the player to think every part of this guitar was made by hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, the guy who made, um, Dave King, who made the guitar that is in the center of my book i mean I, I he said i made this i mean he doesn't have he's a one-man band and he said i'm i made this guitar using the same tools essentially that martin cf martin would have used to have made a guitar he said the you know the radius of the heel he said is is is, is down to what's available with that um spoke shave yeah. he said that's that's what def- i mean in many ways a lots of the Things that we take as a given are were were now were that shape <laughs> because the tools that you could buy, your tools you would have in a luthier's box, would only give you a, a curve that sharp. And he said but, it is it is crazy to think that actually you can have it as sharp as you bloody want it now because we've got a tool that will actually make it, but we still make it because of led primarily by the tools and also aesthetically we find that pleasing somewhere in our head we think that's good what's really funny john is talking to a number of luthiers the the curve at the the top of the 
I thought the neck there that you're talking about, mm -hmm. for many luthiers, that curve is based on the roller diameter on the top of a belt sander, Rockwell belt sander, which that yeah. that curve is what all those necks got because yeah, it's as mundane as that. That's where it fit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's true, as you say. That's back to his philosophy. Like it's it's how things sort of fit together. You, you, everyone, you know, the historians will say, oh, because we did these tests and it was done like that. It was like no, it wasn't. It was. That, that was to do it a bit more than that was bloody hard work. It would take another three hours. So they, they'd stop there and, and we'll just sand it off there. And I remember, go, I remember going to, um, so I've got a, a 19, what's my double O? I've got a 1984 uh, 0042 Martin custom shop. So before the custom shop existed. And um, I, the, uh, the bridge, sorry, um, my brain sometimes doesn't actually click in. The the bridge popped off. I don't mean the bridge. I mean the thing that the saddle is in. That's a bridge, isn't it? That's a bridge, yeah. That's yeah, a bridge. bridge yeah. Yeah. So the bridge popped off. And uh, the lady I used to repair my guitars, because Dave King takes so long to repair guitars, she, she, she does it in half the time. She only takes about a year to do a repair. <laughs> So anyway, I took my 0042 and it sat there for a number of months. Anyway, then she she phoned me and she said, she's French. And she says, you can come and pick up your, you can come to the workshop next week if you want to look at your guitar. I thought, yay, she's done it. She, and she has, her English is a little bit creaky. I thought, great. So I said, I've come for the guitar. I said, she opened it. She said, oh, here it is. I said, and I said, the bridge is still off. He said, she said, yes, you can come and look at the guitar. I said, well, you haven't done it yet. She said, no, I thought we'd discuss what you want done. And of course, you can't say anything. Well, you can, you can. Oh, it's not good enough. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, fine. Anyway, she said, the bridge is wrong. I said, what do you mean? It's, a, it's the original bridge. She said, it is. Yes, I'm not saying it's not the original bridge, but the bridge is wrong. It's a pyramid bridge. She said, in 84, the, the, um, template the jig they were using to machine the bridges was so worn out that the pyramids were all soft they were flat so the, these if you look at and so she goes to her amazing backlog of guitars that are yet to be repaired and pulls out she said, this is a 1921 0042 pyramid bridge opens it up so that's what your bridge should look like because this would have been when the template was new. And what they, because this template was, was a wooden template with a thing going around it, so they wouldn't have noticed. Every month the thing gets softer and softer and softer. So after about 20 years, it's no longer a sharp pyramid bridge. It's a flat one. So she said, oh, so I'll make you a new bridge and it will look like a 1922 bridge. And then we went through all the frets and stuff like that. But it, and it was... But I suppose when you're making that many guitars, you don't notice the little differences. And the same is the same is true with the headstock. Um, the yes. headstocks on the you can look at late late sixties, and they're almost round up on top. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it, and and they had to, to rejig that. I I had a um, a seventy one Martin D thirty five that I bought. You know, my first really big guitar that I I bought, and. Um, that was going to be your keeper. That would be the last guitar that you'd ever buy. The last guitar you'd ever need. Horrible. 
<laughs> it took me about five years of playing it to go to, to it took a year to get past the well it's a great martin you know and then it was like but it doesn't tune i can't get it in tune <laughs> and it just finally i just finally gave up on it but that 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 era and we certainly haven't seen that an era like that from scgc you know they've, yeah. uh, they've, I mean, not, I know the... they've not had the it's worn down let's just keep using it <laughs> philosophy for very long well that's what sold me to you know when i bought my first which was the treble o from uh buffalo brothers in uh, uh escondido escondido yep when escondido. um i've forgotten his name now who who ran it um anyway he retired to hawaii but i think he's come back to america he then sold it and obviously buffalo is no more but i bought it from there and i picked it up and i thought this is such a superior guitar it was so much lighter and so much more responsive and I didn't own one Martin and I owned, I owned that 0042, um, which is a lovely guitar. It's very nice, but it's not as good as Santa Cruz, I have to say. But I, I think the new, the ones that the factory are making now seem to be fantastic. Beyond stellar. It's, it's yeah. making some good stuff. John, I, I'd like to continue this because I don't think, I don't think we've, we've, it's completely different than what I expected we'd come out with. Yeah, <laughs> it's completely, it's completely different. But it it it's absolutely thought provoking and incredibly. I have an amazing library of of folk and blues books. Truly, an amazing library, and um, this is something that I haven't really seen i mean I, I, I we'd love to get you and happy on the on, on the phone together and mm -hmm. and and see how see how that came down but it's just music developed completely at the same and yet differently you know skiffle never hit here yeah yeah we never had skiffle and well, skiffle and, means something completely different doesn't it Exactly. And, 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 and you guys, it was just explosive, you know, and yet we couldn't pick up on it because maybe we were numb to it at that point. You know, the only thing we wanted was the, the new house in the suburb and, 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 and that, and what came out of the fifties for, for this country, but fascinating that we didn't do it at all. And yet it was motivating force for, rock and roll yeah well no and, question and i was really i there were a couple points there if you hadn't such a, a beautifully well thought out train of thought there i wanted to jump in because a couple of things we never talked about is the influence of gospel and soul yeah. on uh yeah. american yeah. music and conversely the influence of the traditional church repertoire on english and european music which I think that, you know, if you listen to a lot of that, uh, I had to sing a lot of it when I was young, mm. um, you hear a lot of where things are coming from. Um, but that that could be that's a completely yeah, different mean, thing. We, and we've got we've got we've got some more ground to cover. Yeah. I, right. I, really do think I mean, a, a couple of people have I'm going now, but I, 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 don't worry, you don't have to press the mute button. The um, <laughs> a couple of people have said, oh, could you do because um, 
the book is you know the 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 devil book is is about the american acoustic guitar and i had a couple of publishers who want who want to republish the book and they said can we just call it the acoustic guitar because the american thing will put up will put some british people off i said well the thing you don't realize is that the flat top steel strung guitar is an american invention and and obviously the archtop guitar is an american invention and obviously the electric guitar is an american invention and that's why it's called that um that's why it's called a you know it's a it's a you know it's a tour of love and obsession about the american acoustic guitar and and then came back and said well would you write how do you feel about writing a book about the british acoustic guitar and i said well i could i just don't think it would be that interesting because it's a it's a much smaller group of people and bear in mind i'm only i'd only be talking about guitars that were we only really got into the stride of making them probably in the 60s i mean there was a guy called zimatius who was a sort of a, a acoustic guitar maker a bit like danny farrington he was a acoustic guitar maker to the stars so he made guitars for donovan and for george harrison and they were one-off instruments um not not very good actually they were quite good he always used to have interesting marquetry on them or he'd paint he'd, he'd stain them green or something like that but they weren't particularly good guitars so we're only talking about a period from say the mid 60s through to the present day and it's a very small window and not much happened really and it still is not a very substantive industry it's you know we, we do have our boutique makers and stefan sobel is very interesting and filed and um and I've forgotten all the others, and there's lots of them, you know, who have got, but they're, it, it's relatively small beer. It is an American invention, and it's a market, and the, and the size of the American market means that still an awful lot of people can make a living out of making guitars. I think there are a lot of boutique guitar makers who make no money. They, you know, it's that old adage, you know, what, when does a guitar maker give up making guitars? And it's usually when he gets divorced. And the, the, <laughs> Just to join the dots, the meaning is the breadwinner in the household has left the household because she's finally sick and tired of supporting this guy who spent all his life in a workshop and doesn't seem to sell many guitars or those he sells. He sells at a loss or break even. So there isn't a British, you know, it, and I do find this very interesting. There is not a British industry. There's a, an, an enormous British, I mean, music industry, and we export so many people to America and so much music around the world. But it just isn't, isn't an instrument-making industry in Britain. It just never happened. And I find genuinely that's quite an interesting little conundrum. Yeah, the only thing I can the only thing I can think of is is Vox. I mean, really, that was probably at some kind of a level, but they sold to an American company in '64. And they weren't that good. No, they weren't. They, they, they really weren't. The amplifier is a different story, but 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 the yeah, guitars, yeah, yeah, no, the, the the guitars, just 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 completely different. It it is, you know, I hadn't really ever ever thought of that, John, until you bring it up here. But mm -hmm. you really, that is really really. It's funny when 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 guitars exploded in, in this country in 55 or 56 or 57 you know with with buddy and and all that stuff everybody ran and started making them you know and 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 and, and they came out and it, that didn't happen with you 
You know, you didn't, yeah. you, didn't you didn't develop the Fenders and the Gibsons. And I think what happened is I think it was just too uh, here. I'm remember it was too late. The America had the top end covered, huh. and Japan had the bottom end covered. Yep. And the 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 space in the middle is that famous. It's the killing ground for all businesses. If you're you know if you're pinched between everyone wants a Fender, a Gibson, a Gretsch, or a Martin, or a Gibson, or whatever, and if you can't afford one of those, then you'll have a, the space in the middle is quite you know. Is there a space in the market, and is there a market in the space, and is the old adage and it's true there was there was just nowhere for us to operate we, we weren't a cheap enough um workforce in order to compete with the japanese and then ultimately the koreans and we, we we didn't have enough brand power to compete genuinely with the likes of of you know martin and gibson and fender so we were screwed there was just no room there and i think that's the answer effectively it really, most people wanted an American guitar. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't. I didn't play a Martin guitar. I didn't even hold a Martin guitar until I was forty. They were so expensive. They were so out. I mean, they were. You know, they were. I mean, I was doing good jobs and stuff. They were both too expensive financially to to think. God, could I really spend that much money on a guitar? And also, I thought emotionally they were out of my league. I, f I would feel like a, a fake because the only people you saw playing Martins and Gibsons were professional musicians who, who were good. And I think, well, I'm not good enough to play one of those. Yeah. And so, so it was, I mean, there was obviously they were being sold and imported here, but, but as a keen, pretty well off amateur home guitarist, it was just not it was just not in my league it was only when i was about 40 that i thought yeah i'm gonna have one and whatever that you know you go into a shop and ask for can i play that martin guitar you sort of had to sign your life away to even be allowed to hold it and you know you we have to stand in the room with you and you can you wash your hands first and you need to take all your clothes off and wear this has chem suit and <laughs> stuff like that and you know the very first time i went to america and in fact it was in santa cruz and i bought my Bought my first guitar, proper decent American-made guitar in Santa Cruz. I bought an Ovation. What a fool I was! Um, but when I could have probably stoked up the money and bought a Martin, but they were just so beyond us. That's why. And, and there was, so there was still a mystique. You know, you went to a folk club, and you uh, when I was in my late twenties, and saw someone playing a Martin, it was like, wow, it's a Martin. They were just anyway. It's been lovely talking to you guys. It really has. And, 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 and we want to really make sure that that um, you take a look at uh, John's new book coming out. There's going to be some very limited editions on uh, iPad and the devil is in it. There's still some iPad versions available, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, the, the new book, the Guitar Detective, is coming out as a hardback. So and that'll only be I'm going to produce the same number of copies. So effectively, if you've bought the existing book, either in any of the three variations, which is the, the color version, the mono version, and the iPad edition, then you'll get first dibs on the go. on the new, and I'll, and I'll do the same again, which is I'm probably gonna print 500 and that's it. So, which is, you know, I've got probably a waiting list of about 80 people who- 81. Say, if, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if ever one of them, if they come up again, if ever you make any more, please, can you, can we, can we have one? Um, uh, well, it, and no one's flogging them. I'm amazed. Um, no, not a bad no place to be. Yeah, no, I, one's I will, no one's reselling them on eBay. I will speak up and say that I have the iPad version of The Devil is in it, and it is really a wonderful thing to have on an iPad Pro. Uh, where it is the full screen and it works. I, I have to admit, I'm a real kind of a book fanatic and I would yeah. desperately love to have had an actual bound paper version of some kind, but um, it does work really nicely on the iPad and it's, it's probably the nicest uh, textual uh, item I have on the iPad, so. It does, I'm very pleased. We spent a lot of time trying to make it work. It didn't, it wouldn't work on a kit, but it, it looks, I, even though I say, the thing is the iPad Pro, I wouldn't say it's worth buying an iPad, but it's worth buying, if you don't have one, it's worth buying a second-hand iPad Pro, because my one, the one I designed, not designed it on, but tested it on, is a seven, eight-year-old iPad. And um, it's, it's the same, the screen size is the same as the paper size. So it's exactly the same size, which was what, where we got the idea from. Um, it isn't as nice as the paper thing. And I would say, Ted, if I had one, I would absolutely let you have a paper copy. But I have, <laughs> no, no. I literally, I have, I have one copy of each. I have one copy of the color and one copy of the Milner. And that's it. I should have kept 10 of them. I was going to say, and I'm sure you probably have those designated in your will to some family member. So I won't ask <laughs> to be put in there, but. Uh... <laughs> well, you might have some guitars that I could trade. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Everybody's got a price. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like we have a basis for another podcast coming up in the future. <laughs> and, absolutely. absolutely. John, you've been incredibly gracious with your knowledge and your time, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Um, it's so it's always fun. Yeah, yeah. There's there's uh, there's been a lot of pressure and stress in my life, and I'm uh, having some good laughs here, and I feel like I had a really great time to just go and be someplace else so, that's good yeah. really really i'm sorry to hear you've had stress because a lot of it around but i'm, sure. I'm pleased it's a short respite i was really looking forward to doing this guy enjoyed the last one and it's it's fun um talking well it's it's just like talking to a couple of chums so uh it's always good and we'll 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 perhaps talk at the end of the year or as soon as i i've, I've got to i've actually finished the guitar detector i've just got a we're just in the production process so i need to get my head around all that and once that's pretty close that that yeah. might be number one on our uh, yeah. Christmas gift suggestion podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, make sure you uh, make sure you let us know when that's available, and yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be out there. But um, uh, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Before we sign off, I just want to say to everybody who's listening to this, we've had a lot of references that I think you're going to have to log into the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. Uh, or look for us on YouTube to get the references to the links to the various artists and, and films and books, because John's done a tremendous job of pointing us in directions that uh, should be quite stimulating. Yeah. Um, so, so lots to learn here. Yeah, lots to learn. Lots to yeah. learn. Thanks. I'll send those links to you. Um, I'll, I'll sort them out. It's now, it's now coming towards nighttime in London. So yeah. I'll, I'll make a list of them tonight and I'll tomorrow I'll find the hot links and I'll, I'll send them off to you and you can uh, post them wherever you wish to post them. Great. None well, of them are mine. They're, they're all just other references. We'll probably post this Sunday morning. 
Terrific. So I'll, I'll let you know when to go. Okay. Terrific. Have a wonderful day, John. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Be safe. Stay cool. Everybody be safe. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar.